0: At Woodlawn Baptist, to take books of the Bible and to preach through those books of the Bible, we rotate between Old Testament and New Testament, for we believe that God has equally spoken and revealed Himself to us in each of these books, such that the word of Scripture in the book of Leviticus is as much the word of God as Jesus' words are in the Gospels, for example. We are in the very heart of the book of Exodus here in chapter 20. You'll know this narrative in some ways well. It's what you and I affectionately call the Ten Commandments. We saw in an introductory way that these Ten Commandments are referred to in the text of Scripture as the Ten Words, and these Ten Commandments form the very foundation of God's covenant relationship with His people, ancient Israel. And as you're making your way to Exodus chapter twenty, I particularly want to extend a welcome to some family members of mine this morning. My great aunt, my grandmother's sister, Aunt Betty Ann, Aunt Bet as we call her, is here, and we're glad to have you, Aunt Bet, and also my daddy's sister, my favorite aunt. Are you gonna buy my lunch today, Aunt Vicky? You're my favorite aunt. <laughs> my daddy's sister, Aunt Vicky, is here, and her granddaughter, my First cousin's daughter uh, Cassie is with us. We're glad to have you guys in worship with us at Woodlawn this morning. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. These 10 words were on commandment number two this morning. Israel was birthed in a culture replete with gods. We saw that narrative as we made our way through the book of Exodus. There were gods everywhere, and Israel has been down in Egypt now for over 400 years, where she has literally been inundated with these gods at at every turn. There was no place to which Israel could look that she would not see these gods everywhere. Knowing the history of her existence, God, when calling Israel to himself, sets before them not only the who of worship, we saw the who of worship last week, you shall have no other God before me. God not only sets before them the who of worship, but God also sets before them the how of worship. And here in commandment number two, we will see the how of worship. Commandment number one, the who? Only worship Yahweh. Commandment number two, you shall not make or bow down and worship and serve an image. It matters how we worship God. If you don't believe me this morning that it matters how we worship God, perhaps we would dial in today and have a conversation with Nadab and Abihu and find out from them, does it matter how one worships God? You say, Pastor, that's in the Old Testament. Well, okay, let's dial up some New Testament people. Uh, Let's ask Ananias and Sapphira, does it matter how one worships God? And the conclusion of the text of Scripture, not only in command, but by example, is a testimony to you and me. It absolutely matters how we worship God. Israel they will hear the very revelation of God concerning this matter. You remember the narrative in chapter 19 of Exodus? Israel is gathered around the foot of Mount Sinai. She sees and hears, Deuteronomy 4 will tell us, this incredible theophany display of the might and power of Of Yahweh, she sees and hears, and yet the narrative of the nation of Israel shows us that even they, even after hearing and even after seeing ancient Israel, even themselves struggle in an incredible way with this place. In fact, just a few short chapters in Exodus as we move forward, we'll see Israel bowing to. A golden image. She carves it out, she cuts it out, she bows down before it, she worships it. And then as the kingdom would be divided between the north and the south, there were kings in both of those, in both of those spheres who led the nation of, of Israel to profane her worship before God, King Manasseh and Second Kings, would so pervert the worship of, of God that he completely filled. The temple in Jerusalem were the idols of Baal, and there led Israel to bow and worship and to serve false dead gods who have no hope. The narrative of ancient Israel would also be the narrative of the early church. As the early church was formed and began to take shape, One of the things that we see quickly taking place in the development of the church was the use of icons. The the use of icons became so pervasive in the narrative of the church. Icons were viewed as instruments that facilitate a connection between the worshiper and the divine. They helped facilitate worship in some ways, even if they themselves were not being worshipped, They were seen as tools or instruments of necessity that guided one in worship. Through the veneration of icons, believers engage in acts of reverence and contemplation, using the images as a means to focus their prayers and to draw near to God. Icons are said not necessarily to be worshipped, even though I think there's a case to be made that they are indeed worshipped, but are considered as channels for encountering the sacred. One of the key focuses of the Reformation was this conversation on the use of idols or the use of icons in, in worship. The Reformers were very concerned with the way the church was using icons. Martin Luther, a key leader in the Reformation expressed reservation about the use of religious icons and images in worship. He said this, quote, I am not of the opinion that through the images man may be taught and strengthened in in his faith. For this reason, the prophets and the Scriptures have not counseled us to use images, but to use the Word of God. And this was the cry of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, only the Word of God. This command would lead the Reformers and those that followed after in a belief that our worship must solely be guided by the text of Scripture, such that everything we do in the context of worship corporately or individually, must be guided by the text of Scripture. It's why we, as the pastors at Woodlawn, seek so diligently to form and to shape our time of corporate worship around the Word of God. If you use your worship guides, you'll notice that the shape of this worship service itself comes from the shape of this text, from the themes flowing from this text, such that we we want to center everything we're doing. And this act of worship around the Word of God. It's why, for example, we seek throughout our various ministries, children's ministry, and student ministry, and and college ministry, and adult ministry, and discipleship groups, to be grounded in the Word of God. And as we'll note at the end of this sermon, ultimately I believe This is what God is calling the nation of Israel to do in this how of worship. Worship only God, and worship only God in this way. Let your worship be guided, controlled by the Word. We read this text of Scripture in chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice how this text begins in much the same way as last week's narrative. It begins with stating the negative. Uh, The Lord could have easily said to ancient Israel, only worship me. But he states it in the negative. You shall have no other gods before me. He does it here with this second commandment. He could have simply said, only bow down and worship me. Me alone. Only I. But he states it in the negative. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. This use, this, this word here, in the ESV, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. If you're reading from uh, a few different translations this morning, it simply means a carved idol. It's, it's translated, this is one of the words that is used, it's the most prevalent word used in the Old Testament for Declaring or describing an idol, this carved image. An idol is something that is hewn or something that is carved out. We see specifically here in Exodus that it was specifically in relationship to something carved out of wood or stone, but as the narrative would progress by the time we get to the recounting of this narrative in Deuteronomy, chapter 5, it's extended not only to those things that are carved out of wood and stone, it's also extended to that which is carved out of metal. And by the way, this would be the same word that God would use as He was talking about the use of the two stone tablets that were carved out For the words of God to appear for the for ancient Israel to hew or to cut out to cut straight, God is forbidding in every imaginable way the use of you and me and making an idol, an image that competes with God for our affection. worship. Don't make any carved image. But notice here, this text also uses another word, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, or notice next, or any likeness, literally any shape. Both words are used to describe the use of idols. God is using these Two words, a carved image or a likeness or a shape, to ultimately ultimately declare, don't use any form, any shape, any kind, no matter what it is formed from or from what realm it is formed. No idol of any kind. We are not to make, as one theologian declared, quote, any image that resembles anything. God has created in the heavens, on the earth, or under the earth. You've read the creation account from Genesis. There's so many linguistic connections as we make our way through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Why? Because they're written by one author, Moses. And notice the use of this language, whether... In the heavens above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water underneath the earth. Where have we heard that phrase from? <clears throat> creation. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and in Genesis chapter 1, God is reflecting on, on creation. And what has God created? The heavens above, the earth below, and the water Underneath, God is ultimately reminding us in this language of not making an idol that God is the one who has created all things and He rules over all things. In other words, God is grounded in this commandment all the way back in creation to remind you and me there is only one who is worthy of our worship. And He is the one that has created the heavens and the earth. Him. And to Him alone is our worship due. Don't make any carved image. But notice verse 5. That's not the only command here in this second command. You shall not make don't carve, but verse 5, you shall not bow down to them, or serve them, or worship them, God says. Do not bow down, literally literally means do not prostrate yourself before. To fall down before another was a sign of, of commitment. It was a it was an acknowledgment that the one that we're bowing before is, is greater than, than I am. And God is reminding the nation of Israel that there is only one who is greater than anything that they can experience or see or know. God is the greatest, and because of that, to Him and Him alone is our worship due to bow down before God is what, Yahweh, what Israel was commanded to do only before God and not before all of these other idols. It was also used not only in uh, reference to bowing down before God, but we see other examples in the texts of the Old Testament when someone would approach another who had a higher position. One might see himself bowing down before him. a statement of, of honor. And friends, this ultimately is a disposition not of an act, but of our hearts. What is your heart's disposition before God this morning? Is your heart positioned in a way that communicates honor and glory to God and God alone? Is your heart positioned in such a way that you're willing to confess as we sang just a few moments ago? Yet not I, but Christ in me. Is your life about you is your life about God. God is far more concerned in our heart's disposition before Him than He is in our acts before Him because it's possible, yes, even possible for us to prostrate ourselves before a holy, good, and righteous God and yet our hearts be far from Him. While these commandments in so many ways are concerned about an act, do not murder. That's, that's an act. What will Jesus teach us in the New Testament? You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, any man who has looked upon another woman with lust in his heart has done what? Committed adultery. Jesus shows us that God is far more concerned with the disposition of our hearts than he is in our actions. We are not to bow down, but notice, secondly, we are not to worship or to serve. Some of your Bibles translates this word in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Some of your Bibles translates that word serve as worship. It's the exact same word in the Hebrew. This word will not be unfamiliar to you, we've seen it in our journey through the book of Exodus. For example, go back with me to Exodus chapter 3, in Exodus chapter 3, in the beginning of this narrative in which God has given instructions to Moses that Moses would be the spokesperson who would go stand before Pharaoh. What is God's purpose, desire, in bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12 of chapter 3, he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent before you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall do what? Serve. You shall worship God on this mountain. This is what... Moses would take as the authoritative word from God and stand before Pharaoh. Chapter 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve, that he may worship me. This was God's design for the nation of Israel, for his people, that they might collectively be a people that worships and serves God alone. This is what the psalmist is aiming at in Psalm 99, 9, exalt the Lord our God and serve or worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. God is ultimately warning the nation of Israel and this command for them to turn back after being delivered from Egyptian bondage and serve other gods would be a reversal of the exodus. God is not wanting the nation of Israel to reverse what he's done for them in the exodus. God is not wanting the nation of Israel to to erase the redemption that God has provided for them through their false acts of worship. Why? Why does God dictate, command, that you and I worship Him in this way? Because this type of worship strikes at the very character of who God is. Notice what he says here, At the end of verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I am Yahweh, your God, and I am what type of God? I am a jealous God. God is jealous for our worship and our worship alone. God desires that we as His people worship Him and Him alone. Why? For he is the one who has acted to redeem us. Therefore, no other God or idol has responded for you and me in this way. What is the greatest need of every human heart, friends? The greatest need of every human heart is redemption from sin. See, friend, the Bible tells us Beginning in the narrative of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and in doing so they fell into sin, and the fact of the matter is we are born as children of Adam and Eve. We're born sinners, separated from a holy, good, righteous God, and like the nation of Israel, we too are born down in Egypt in bondage, in slavery not in bondage and slavery to another nation, but in bondage and slavery to our own sin. And the narrative of God through Christ is that God through Christ is doing for you and me what God did for the nation of Israel. He is seeking to bring us out of Egypt. He is seeking to bring us out of our bondage to sin and to redemption. If you're here this morning and you're still in Egypt, if you're still enslaved to your sin, there's no way for you to live rightly before God in relationship to this command. The only way for you to rightly worship God is to bow before Him and humble submission, acknowledging your sin before Him and your need of Him. For the Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, because of the redemption that He has provided for you and me through the person of Jesus, is jealous, is desirous, of our affection and our worship, aimed and directed at Him and Him alone. There is no other person or thing that can redeem you from your greatest need other than Jesus. And because Jesus has acted in that way, friends, He and He alone is worthy of our praise. This is what God says here. I am I'm a jealous God. I am jealous for your affections. Why is God jealous for our worship and our worship alone? Uh, we read just a few moments ago from Psalm 115. Uh, Psalm 115 reminds us that these idols are completely useless. They can't do anything for you. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, and they can't see. So it begs a question, why do we give ourselves to idols who can provide absolutely nothing for us? Oh, the fact of the matter is, if we're honest this morning, each of us have idols and we walked through a listing of those last week. Each of us have idols, and it's a daily battle in our own hearts to reject those. But the fact is, each and every one of us have idols that we cling so closely to, and we think that those idols are providing a sense of comfort and security and in too many ways, and at too many times, pleasure. But we're reminded through this text of Scripture to reject those worldly idols as being useless, for not one of them can redeem our hearts and our lives. God becomes jealous when we worship other gods, and this is the narrative that will flow following Israel's encounter with the golden calf. At the foot of the mountain here, Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, he is a jealous God. Why do we worship in this way? because to do other violates the very character of God. But notice, secondly, because there's a warning. See friends, how we worship bears immediate implications and future implications. Every one of us think that from time to time we can get away with sin, we conceal it, we hide it, we think no one else is watching. And we get away with it often. And yet, at some point, we realize that sin not only affects me, it affects someone else. Look what the Lord said in verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation And notice this designation. To the third and fourth generation of who? Those who hate me. Notice God's designation of those who sin against them. What does our sin communicate before a holy, righteous, good God? Not our love for Him. Our disdain for him. Look at the implications for wrongly worshiping God, visiting the iniquity, the sin of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation and to those who hate me. Is God saying that future generations are directly responsible or held accountable for our sins? We've heard a lot of narrative in the the life of this country over the last four or five years about conversations such as this. We've seen pleas for whole groups and listings of people to respond with an act of repentance because people 200, 300, 400 years ago responded in a right way. And the foundation for that cry is laid here in Exodus chapter 20. Can I repent? Of Erica's sin? Well, number one, I'd have to spend all day. I don't have time for that. No, I can't I can't repent for Erica's sin. She is responsible for her sin before God. Can, can Erica repent of my sin? No. Can the current iteration of this congregation? Can those of us seated in this building today? Can we re, can we repent for the sins of this congregation from a hundred years ago? Israel wrongly understood God's command here. Israel struggled with the right application of what God was saying of visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Such that an entire chapter in a later prophet, the 18th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, God has to spend a lengthy narrative reminding ancient Israel... That ultimately, God will judge the one who has sinned, but don't miss the implication here. What God is saying to you and me through this second commandment is don't think you can sin and it only affect you. You see, Daddy, what God is saying in this passage of Scripture here is if you worship wrongly, if you lead your family to worship wrongly, don't be surprised when your children continue in the wrong worship of God. Don't be surprised when your grandchildren continue in the wrong worship of God. Don't be surprised when your great-great-grandchildren continue in the wrong worship of God. Mom and dad and grandparents. The how of worship carries generational implications for your family. What legacy do you desire to leave behind this morning, friend? The psalmist desires that generation after generation might know the goodness and the greatness of God. This is why Moses, in just a few books later, Deuteronomy, at the end of this narrative of Moses' leadership in ancient Israel, he will say to them, you should take these words of God and you should bind them on yourself. You should bind them on your forehead. You should bind them on your arms. You should recount them as you lie down, as you stand up, as as you eat at every turn of your life. Why, friends? Because it only takes... One generation, 20 years of people wrongly worshiping God, for you and me to look back throughout history and see a hundred years later those people still doing it wrong. Why do we worship this way? Why do we seek to center the corporate worship of this church around the Word of God? Why should you parents be seeking to ground your children in the truths of the text of Scripture? It literally matters for generations to come. If this is true, and it is... what will your family's tree of worship look like in 60, 80, or 100 years? Woodlawn, we're not only laboring for the right preaching and teaching of the Word of God for today, though we are, we absolutely are, But we're laboring for the right teaching and preaching of the Word of God, not only for this generation of people who are seated in this sanctuary, but for future generations of people who will sit in this sanctuary. And if we don't steward well the responsibility that God has given us, this congregation will look like congregations that are scattered all across Europe today. What a tragedy to tour Europe and see cathedrals that once heralded forth the truth of the Word of God being turned into Muslim mosque. It only takes a few generations to erase what God has built in this generation and how you and I worship plays a large measure in what the next generation does. There is a warning, but notice there is a reward. There's not only a warning for the negative implications, there's a, there's a reward for, for doing this right. Right? Look at that reward there in verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Lord uses a word that you and I have seen repeated throughout the text of Scripture, chesed, the steadfast love of God. It's a communication also of his very character. That character revealed through his jealousy, but this character also revealed through his steadfast love. And notice, friends, what happens when you and I worship right. Notice what happens when we get the how of worship right. For how long do the positive implications of getting the how or worship right carry forward, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations, literally, of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you see the greatness and the glory of getting it right? it bears far greater implications for thousands of years and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Now we're talking about what does our family tree of worship look like? Do you want it to go for thousands of years, church? Do you want it to extend to great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren? God says, worship me rightly. And that's exactly what will happen. So okay, pastor, we rightly understand the command from Genesis, sorry, from Exodus chapter 20, verses 4, 5, and 6. But what does that look like? for us. How do we understand this commandment in light of the the new covenant? By the way, Paul in 1 Corinthians, the New Testament absolutely covers uh, idolatry and the worship of idols. What does Paul call the worship of idols? He says you're worshiping demons. How do we, in light of The call of this second commandment and the New Testament call for us to abandon these idols. How do we rightly live in light of this text of Scripture? I'd like to answer that question first by looking at a passage of Scripture here in the Old Testament. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. For the second time, Moses is gearing up to give this generation that will go into the promised land, he's going to give them the Ten Commandments again. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, listen at the instruction of Moses. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. There's that generational aspect. Make what known? Verse 10, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of fire. You heard the sound of words, but notice this, you saw no form. There was only a what? There was only a voice. Friends, a prohibition of worship of idols is grounded in the fact that God himself is spirit. And what you and I ultimately need and what Israel ultimately needed and the right worship of God is not some experience, but a divine revelation from God. This is why the New Testament will pick up for you and me this concept of Word. We understand Word in two ways. The Word of God is revealed through the text of Scripture, but Jesus is the Word of God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The right worship, the how of worship for you and me is the how of worship for ancient Israel, is the how of worship for the early church. The how of worship is for you and me to be firmly committed to God through His Word. For God has given to you and me everything we need to rightly know who He is by His Word, and that Word applied to our heart by His Spirit. This is what Peter would ultimately confess as a right understanding when he reflected on the gathering of The three at the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, but we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus is the image of God And Jesus would say to the collection of people wanting to see God, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We need no further evidence than the Word of God revealed to you and me through Jesus and the Word of God revealed to you and me through His Word. The right worship... Of a holy, good, and gracious God is for you and me to center our very lives around that Word. Have you centered your life around the Word of God today, friends? If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, as I noted just a few moments ago, the Bible tells us that there's one way for you to center your life around the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing how? Through the Word of God. There is only one way for you to live in right relationship with God. It is through faith in the person of Christ as revealed in His Word. There is only one way for you and me as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to live our lives in a passionate pursuit of worship before God, that is to center our hearts and our lives around his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the revelation of yourself to us through your word. We thank you that through your written word and through Christ, you have shown us what it is like to rightly live our lives before you. And now, God, we would ask, as we take a few moments and pause to reflect upon your word, that you would take, God, the truths of this word, and you would apply them to our hearts. For those of us who are believers, you would enrich in our faith and our hope and trust, and you You would increase, God, our delight and desire for your word, for the one that might be here today that's not a believer. God, would you draw them to faith in Christ? This is our prayer. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect upon the preaching of God's Word? How are you walking in obedience to this command? How do you demonstrate faithfulness to God through this command? What's your worship like? Would you ask God this morning to help us as a church to be faithful to continually center ourselves around the word? Would you ask God to grant strength to the pastors of this church that we would lead with the conviction of God's word? Would you ask God to grant us as a congregation a delight in God's Word. Would you ask God to help you faithfully communicate God's Word to those generations behind you? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing in a hymn that is a prayer, that we might each turn our eyes upon Jesus. As we sing that hymn, perhaps you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. Myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward and speak to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you and ask them how you can trust in Christ. They would delight in sharing with you. Secondly, perhaps you'd like one of us to pray with you. Pastor Travis and I would delight in shepherding your hearts by praying with you that the truths of this text of scripture might indeed be evident in your life. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we stand to respond to you now, we ask that our response might be pleasing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.